Good morning. I'm Laura, and I'm glad to be with you. So reading from Acts 15 this morning, verses 36 to 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought he, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we, we thank you for this word that's been read to us. And we, we pray that we would be able to hear today what you have to say to us through it. Lord, each of us come with, with different distractions, uh, different things in our mind that may keep us from hearing what you have to say. So help us to hear. Uh, we need your Spirit's help and make us open to receiving what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a, a question that emerged in my sermon preparation, and then I shared with it a bit with you last week as we talked about Paul's teaching in Romans 14 about disputable matters. That in the church, we, we disagree with one another, and we have to figure out what to do when we have these things that we disagree with that Paul calls disputable. Like two well-meaning Christians, earnest, sincere Christians can disagree about this. What do we do about that? And so that was a teaching last week. And the question that emerged for me over the week in preparing for that, and then I mentioned it in my sermon last week, is, well, what is essential? And what is disputable? And I really wasn't able to shake off that 
question this week as I began to prepare uh, this sermon. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that this week by actually skipping a week in the curriculum. Um, If you are following through the curriculum on your own or in your small group, uh, the next one is the diversity that we share in our different callings in the world. And then the the next one after that is being like-minded. And I've actually just flipped those two. And so this week we're going to talk about what it means to be like-minded. And we'll address these questions a little bit today. And then next week we'll talk about um, what it means for us to be a church that is diverse in the various callings that God has given us in the world. And by the way, I just want to say that each week as I begin to prepare, I read through uh, the curriculum that was written for us by members of our church. And you all did such a good job. It just has been awesome this year to read through those. And um, they're just biblically rich and culturally sensitive and just really um, have spoken to me. And so I thank you for all of your work on that this summer. But today we're going to look at at what it means to be like-minded. In the reading from Philippians chapter 2, Paul challenges us to be like-minded, to have the same mind. But the Bible also acknowledges that there are going to be disagreements among us. That there's going to be the challenge that each of us have to do the hard work of being humble with other people, being gentle with other people that we disagree with. The Bible acknowledges, Paul, as we looked at last week, acknowledges that there are going to be disputable matters. So this morning, I want to talk about what it means to pursue like-mindedness when we disagree with one another. And I want to do that by focusing on some of the Apostle Paul's own story, some examples in his own life of where he had to face disagreeing with others and then talk about how to work that out. We've looked at the Apostle Paul a lot over the last couple of months. Ephesians chapter 4 has been our confession of faith that we've often read at the end where he challenges us to be completely humble and gentle and bear with one another in love. Last week, Romans chapter 14 about disputable matters and today Here in Philippians chapter 2, what he teaches us about agreeing with one another and having the same mind. But today we're also going to look at a story from Paul's own life. How did he live this out? And in Acts chapter 15, um, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, tells this story about the early church facing a very serious disagreement. And Paul was right in the middle of it. Throughout our time looking at Uncommon Unity, we've talked about this persistent struggle in the early church to pursue unity between Jews and Gentiles. This division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians was a problem for the early church that they had to figure out. How are we going to follow Jesus together? How are we going to worship God together when we come from these two different backgrounds? The Jews have been given the law of God by God that told them how to worship God faithfully. And they knew that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so it only made sense to them that continuing to follow the law was how to be faithful to the Jewish Messiah that had come. But in the book of Acts, Gentiles were beginning to experience salvation. Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah, but also Lord over everyone and everything. So in their view, being faithful to him did not require fidelity to strict adherence to the Jewish law. 
And a large portion of the book of Acts and the letters of Paul are written to address this division between these two groups of people. The whole passage from Romans chapter 14 that we looked at last week is a practical teaching about how to work out this problem between these two groups of people thought that fidelity to Jewish dietary laws was essential to faith. Some people thought that, and others thought otherwise. So in Acts chapter 15, the early church faces this problem, and we have this story of the early church giving its first try of how to work this out. So turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Right before this chapter, we have a story where there are Gentiles becoming followers of Jesus. Some of the very first Gentile believers becoming followers of Jesus. And beginning with a little bit in the work that Peter does with Cornelius, and then through the work of Paul and Barnabas, there begins to be this move of the Holy Spirit among Gentiles, non-Jewish people who are beginning to receive Jesus the Jewish Messiah as Lord of their own lives. And they begin to follow him as his disciples. And everyone's excited about that. But there are some Jewish Christians who begin to teach that these Gentile Christians have to become Jewish in order to be faithful to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. They have to begin following the Jewish law to be faithful to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And so let's hear what happens in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. There are all these Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. They're following him. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, from the center of the Jewish world to the center of the Gentile Christian world at that time. And they teach the brothers this, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas, who were both preaching the gospel to these Gentiles, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent, on their way, uh, sent them on their way, and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And the news made all the brothers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus must be circumcised and must be required to obey the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So all the leaders of the church gather together in Jerusalem, and they have a council, a meeting to decide on this matter. And over the course of Acts chapter 15, Peter stands up and he gives his testimony. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they give their testimony about what they are seeing among the Gentiles. And then James gives his own report and his own thoughts about what this might mean. And by the end of the meeting, the whole council agrees. There is unity in the leadership of the church at this time. And their conclusion, I think, is very interesting. Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29. This is their conclusion after they meet together in this council. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you, that is Gentiles, with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, 
from the meat of the strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And they send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, back to these other Gentile cities to give them this report. And what's interesting about this conclusion is that they are very clear that they do not have to be circumcised or to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. But there are still some practices that we're going to ask you to abstain to for the sake of your Jewish brothers. The Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be Christians. At the same time, there were particular eating practices and fellowship practices in that time that Jews are going to be particularly sensitive to. And if you want to be together in the same church, if you want to share a meal together, Jew and Gentile, Gentiles, you need to prefer your Jewish brothers and sisters and abstain from these certain things, or they're not going to be able to eat with you. That's a brief summary of the council in Jerusalem from Acts 15. And what's important for you to note for today about this whole scene is how central the Apostle Paul is to this story. This event happens before Paul has ever written any of his letters. And Paul, we see in this story, is beginning to grow in his own knowledge of the gospel and how the gospel works itself out in the life of the church. And we learn a lot about Paul in this passage. This is a very early formative story in Paul's own life as a, as a follower of Jesus and as an apostle. And we begin to see the seeds of his convictions that will later come into full bloom in his letters. We read that in Acts chapter 15 and 16. Paul is a man who is passionate about the gospel going to Gentiles. He is passionate about no barrier standing in the way of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. And at the same time, he is passionate about seeing Jews and Gentiles coming together in worshiping Jesus, the Messiah, who is the Lord of all things. And in this story, he's beginning to experience the conflict between these two passions— How is this going to work itself out in the church and in Paul's own life and ministry? So in Acts chapter 15, we read about Paul who is working this out, and we see he is not afraid to disagree and to debate with people. He's not afraid to challenge his brothers who he knows are in the wrong, but he is also at the same time passionate about seeing the church come together in unity, and he plays a central role in the council where all the leaders of the church are gathered together and in this council come to unity together about this important question. Paul is integral in helping the church find agreement on this important matter in the early church. He is one of the architects of the agreement that the church comes up with about how to lower the barrier of the gospel to the Gentiles while at the same time maintaining unity with Jewish Jewish Christians. He wants to see the church united together under Jesus, and he helps to make that happen. Now let's read the very next story. After Paul has done all of this work to make sure that the church stays together, let's stay together in unity, let's work together for the sake of the gospel. What's the next story? It's the story of Paul and Barnabas having such a sharp disagreement that they have to part ways. 
Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So in Acts chapter 15, we have this story of Paul, this integral voice in keeping the church unified in diversity. But then in the very next story, he cannot even maintain unity with his best friend, Barnabas. The scriptures are so honest about human life in the church and the history of the early church. It was not a perfect place. If Luke wanted to write a legend of the apostle Paul, he would not have included this story. But here he is telling these two stories right next to one another. Paul, this key figure in keeping the whole church unified together through this complicated theological question about salvation as it relates to the Jewish law, and then unable to maintain unity with his own individual relationship with his friend. I want to give some practical thoughts that we learn from this moment in Paul's life. The first is this. Paul was not perfect. You do not have to pretend to be. Throughout the last couple of months, I have pointed out over and over again Paul's instructions to us. Be humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Prefer the weaker brother. Pursue those things that bring peace and build one another up. In our reading from Philippians today, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Later, in the same letter in Philippians, Paul talks to two women in the church, Udaya and Syntyche, who had their own sharp disagreement with one another, and he pleads with them, begs them to agree with one another. Paul failed to live out his own vision perfectly, and the Bible is honest about that. So as we come to this topic of uncommon unity here at Broadway Christian Church, When we have failures, and we will, in our own life, in our own relationships individually with one another, and as a whole church, that does not mean that God has stopped working among us. And you also don't have to deny the reality in your own life. You can admit, I've been the weaker brother here who has cast judgment on my stronger brother. I've been the stronger brother who has looked down on my weaker brother. I've not been humble and gentle in my relationship with you. Will you please forgive me? Paul was not perfect even in living out his own vision for the church. You don't have to pretend to be, and that brings freedom to us. We can admit that you and I, all of us, in our need, in our disagreements, in our stubbornness to forgive, that each one of us need Jesus. And he's the only one who does this right. Secondly, God is at work in our disagreements. Paul and Barnabas disagreed and they separated. And look what happened. God doubles the work. Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark, they go different ways, and he doubles the work. When we divide, God multiplies. When we divide, God multiplies. 
that came to me this morning. I thought, I really wish I could preach like one of my black pastor friends right now, because I would run with this one for a while. I think the organ would be going. When we divide, God multiplies. Thank you. We'll try, you know. Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark, and there's now two teams traveling from church to church encouraging these new disciples. God is at work in our disagreements. He does what he does in taking our failures and turning them for good. He is a really good God in that way, and we see him doing that here in Paul and Barnabas' own life. In our own church history here at Broadway, there have been failures— to live out our calling to uncommon unity. There have been divisions. There have been church splits. There have been staff and leaders who couldn't work together anymore and went their separate ways. And some of you still bear the wounds and scars of those failures. They hurt. They're hard. Just the memory of them can hurt. But in some cases, we can already look back and see the way that God was at work in them in our own lives, in the ways that he opened up doors for new ministries and opportunities on the other side of those conflicts, this is the way that God works because he is great and he is good. So I want to encourage you with those thoughts. And at the same time, this is an encouragement from the way that God is at work in the midst of our failures. But I want to say that this has not let us off the hook of pursuing peace and unity. There's a section in Romans, I think it's chapter 6, where Paul argues that wherever sin is, grace abounds. And so he asks the rhetorical question, well then, shouldn't we sin all the more so that grace can abound all the more? That makes sense. I want lots of grace. I'll just sin more. And his answer is, hell no. Literally, 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 hell is talking there. In that question. And the same sort of rhetorical question can be asked here. If God multiplies when we divide, shouldn't we just divide so God can multiply? And the answer is hell no. Making multiplication out of division is only something God can do. That is his miraculous and his gracious business. But we have a clear calling from God to pursue unity together. In Philippians, Paul says to be like-minded. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first four verses. Paul, the same apostle who could not agree with his brother Barnabas, says this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and c compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we encounter sharp disagreements, what do we do? How do we act? How do we maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? How do we pursue what brings peace and builds one another up? 
when we find ourselves in disagreements with brothers and sisters, how do we pursue like-mindedness? The first thing that I want to suggest to you today is these are some practical suggestions for us to think about pursuing pursuing one another in the midst of disagreements. And the first is this, is that when we are in these disagreements, to just ask the question, what kind of disagreement is this? What kind of disagreement is this? There's a, a famous phrase that's been passed down over the centuries. In essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. And in all things, charity. In essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. And in all things, charity. That is a great sentiment, but how do we know? How do we determine when a matter is essential and when it is disputable? When it's an essential thing that we have to maintain unity in, or when it is a non-essential thing where we can give and offer liberty to one another. I just want to say to you that this week, I have discovered that this is a very complicated question. When I started this sermon this week, I began writing this sermon thinking that I was going to give a list of a very few essential matters, but the nuances of trying to do that was really beyond my ability So what I want to do instead, which I think is going to be far more helpful for us in the long run, is to offer to you a paradigm that I came across a few months ago from a Christian teacher named Gary Bershears, and that I've returned to this week. It's been helpful for me to think about how we live together as the church in the midst of diversity and disagreement. When we are in disagreement with one another, one of the first questions we can ask is, what kind of disagreement is this? And Dr. Bershears gives four different kinds of disagreements. There are disagreements that we can die for, that we would die for. There are issues that we would die for. There are issues that we would divide for. There are issues that we would debate for. And there are issues that we decide for four different kinds of issues in the church that we might disagree about issues that we die for divide for debate for or decide for and so if you would imagine with me for a moment if you want to have an image in your head if you can just imagine a neighborhood called christian neighborhood and there are a lot of houses in this neighborhood Everyone in this neighborhood believes the same things about the die-for issues. But there are lots of different houses in this neighborhood. We all believe in the die-for issues, but we have divided and we've decided to worship and to fellowship in different houses in this one neighborhood called Christian Neighborhood. There are some issues that we have decided that because they are so both important, but also we cannot come to agreement on them, that we have chosen to live in different houses. We hope with very low fences, but different houses where we worship and fellowship together. But we believe that our neighbors are still brothers in Christ. We still believe that they are sisters in Christ. Everyone who believes in the die for issues. So let's talk first about the the die-for issues. These are beliefs that define who is and who is not a Christian. Paul gives at least a very few basics of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Paul says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. These are at least some of the die-for issues. He says this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to 12, and then after that to 500 of the brothers at the same time. That Jesus died on the cross, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was actually buried and then raised from the dead. You can't deny those things and still live in Christian neighborhood. That's at least part of the essentials of what it means to be a Christian. I'm not being mean if I say you're not a Christian if you don't believe these things. I'm just saying that's not what it, it, this is what it means <laughs> to be a Christian is to believe at least these core things. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says the essential things are those things that all Christians everywhere have always believed. Early Christians developed the Apostles' Creed, which was some of the important key doctrines that all Christians everywhere have always believed. These are not beliefs and convictions that you have to fully understand in order to be a Christian. I mean, who really fully understands the resurrection? Nobody fully understands it, but you can't deny it and still live in the Christian neighborhood. Let's think about the next circle. The, so I, I would define these as belief and convictions to define what it means to be a Christian. Divide four questions. These are beliefs and convictions that are unresolvable and that would hinder your conscience if you remained. Beliefs and convictions that are unresolvable and that would hinder your conscience if you remained. These are beliefs and convictions that typically divide different denominations that we have. Baptism, views of baptism, views of communion, and understanding how grace and faith work together, views of the sovereignty of God and salvation. These are different topics, rightly or wrongly, that individuals, that Christians have divided for over the years. And there are a lot of churches here in our city that we believe are filled with brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not disagree with them on essential matters. They're still in the Christian neighborhood, but there are convictions and beliefs and practices that are unresolvable and that would harm consciences if we tried to stay together and worship in the same house. So, for example, if you're a young couple and you have a conviction that your children need to be baptized as infants as a sign of being a part of the covenant family— that would simply be an unresolvable difference here for us, and that would be an example of an issue that we would need to divide over. That couple would need to find a church who is able to do that. It would harm my conscience to baptize an infant. But this is something that, in your understanding of the Scriptures, is something that's important and essential, and to not baptize your baby would be keeping them from some grace that is important to them and to, to you. These are issues where we live with others in the same neighborhood, but we live in different houses. And again, hopefully the fences are very low between us. 
Third are issues that we debate, debate for. These are beliefs and convictions that we disagree about, but do not hinder worship and fellowship together. Beliefs and convictions that we disagree about, maybe even strongly, but they don't hinder us from worshiping and fellowshipping together. I would suggest that this is really where discipleship happens in these disagreements. This is where we really have to practice those commands that Paul has given to us to be patient and to bear with one another in love. This is where we learn in these debates and disagreements in the same house how to become more like Jesus in our relationships with each other. And then there are decide for issues. And I'd say these are simply opinions and preferences. And there are literally, I would say, an infinite amount of these in this category. The essentials are very few. The divide for are a little bit more, but not quite as much as the debate, debate for. And then the decide for, there are literally an infinite amount of preferences and opinions that we could share about all sorts of topics. The kind of music we listen to, what different kinds of ministries we should have, how long our sermons should be, thoughts about what we wear at church, thoughts about whether a Christian should drink alcohol or not, opinions about who we should vote for in the next election. These are all matters that people in different churches, in one church, are going to decide for themselves, even though they're in the same church together. And I suggest to you that most of the disagreements that we have with one another are in those last two categories, debate for and decide for. Most of the disagreements that we have in the church are in those last two categories, which means that for the mo- most of the time, you can stay together in the same house and worship with one another. And I think for us in the American church, this is one of our biggest mistakes and what weakens the church and our unity and what weakens our own personal discipleship and growth is that we take issues that are debate for and decide for and we make them divide for or die for. In the American church, we also have this this burden, especially here in a city like Fort Wayne, where we have so many choices, choices of churches to go to. You probably passed more than a dozen churches to come to this one today. Why is that? And that choice, that choice is fine. It's a good thing. But it, it's kind of like when you go to the grocery stores. I prefer Aldi because I have two choices of orange juice, not 25 choices of orange juice. Like three options for shampoo. What do I know about shampoo? Like... There's 50 in the Kroger aisle. Like, what do I know what's best for my hair? So I leave stressed out that I didn't get the right one, right? And the same kind of feeling and anxiety and possibility and opportunity can come when we think about churches. What about that one over there? Maybe that one would help me grow more. Maybe that one would help me in this or that way more. And we... We've got choice, and so that is a burden for us, really, to carry this choice. In Ephesus, there was the church in Ephesus. You're there or you're not, and you had to work it out. We have this other scenario here, and and our, our own situation makes this difficult for us because it's very easy to leave and to go find a church that agrees with us on all the debate for and that agrees with us, maybe even on all the decide for issues. And I want to say that that 
that hinders our growth. It hinders our ability to learn what it means to be patient and gentle and to bear with other people who are different than us. It keeps us from being the full, mature followers of Jesus that we are called to be. So what I'm offering for in these four different categories um, is to just acknowledge that we are going to disagree with each other here at Broadway. Being a church of uncommon unity does not mean that we agree exactly on every single thing. I am going to preach things that you may disagree with. Our church leadership may make decisions about things that you disagree with. In your small group, no doubt you're going to bump up against brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently about all sorts of things. And so when we have those disagreements, we can ask the question, what kind of disagreement is this? Is the topic we are disagreeing about something that Christians throughout the centuries have always agreed on as essential to our salvation? Is it something that defines whether someone is a Christian or not? Is it a disagreement that I would be willing to die over? Or is this a a disagreement that's very important to you, that's very clear in your heart, and so important, in fact, that to be in a church that does not believe the same things or practice the same things, that you would need to leave it, and it would damage your conscience or hinder your growth before God if you stayed? Or is this a disagreement that we need to debate about and talk about and learn from one another and be curious about and to grow? Or is this merely a matter of preference? We can talk about it and disagree about it, but this is really about preferences and opinions that at the end of the day don't matter much. So I think it's important as we enter into these disagreements to ask the question, what kind of disagreement is this? What kind of disagreement is it for me personally? What kind of disagreement is it for you? Is this an essential matter for you? Is this a matter that you'd be willing to divide over? Who am I talking to here about this particular issue? It may be helpful paradigm for you as you're having disagreements with others to maybe set that out at the beginning so that you can know as you continue in your conversation Okay, finally, this last and most important thing. If we are going to experience unity together, if we're going to experience single-mindedness in the midst of the dozens of disagreements that we will have with one another at our church, there is a particular attitude, a disposition of the heart that we must have. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 again. Actually, I'll just read verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul warns us against two things. First, do nothing out of selfishness. When we find ourselves in a disagreement, in an argument, in a conflict with a brother or sister, we have to be careful that our actions are not motivated by selfishness, by the need to be right, by the need to get our own way. As Paul said in Romans 14 from last week, we are called to pursue whatever brings unity for the whole and encouragement for the person that you're talking to. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Boy, if that was easy. That was even easy to know (laughs) what's going on in our heart when we're in an argument, to even acknowledge it or recognize it, let alone to not act out of it. 
But when we know we are doing it, when we find that I'm being motivated here, not by a hope for unity or for the encouragement of a brother, but about winning, about getting my own way, and that's a clue that we are acting out of selfish ambition. And then he gives a second warning, to do nothing out of conceit or pride or vain conceit. This is a reminder to us, a warning to us, to remind us that sometimes we think we can know more than what we can really know. We are not God. There is a temptation for some of us to believe that we're the only ones who have come to the truth, and everyone who disagree with us is just wrong. That is vain conceit. God's word is true. It is perfect. Our own interpretation of God's word is subject to the fall of man. Our interpretation, our ability to understand, our reason is not perfect. It is flawed and fallen. And each of us come to the Bible with flawed, fallen reason and minds. We come with our own biases and perspectives and hopes. And it is vain conceit to believe that you are the only one who comes to the Bible with a perfectly pure heart, a perfectly good and ordered mind. That is vain conceit. The scriptures are perfect and true. Our interpretation is not. And so we need to be very careful to not be guilty of vain conceit. So rather than selfish ambition and vain conceit, Paul calls us to humility. In humility, consider others better than yourself. And here, Paul turns the attention away from himself. He knows better than you and I do just how far he has failed to live up to this calling. And so he points us to the one who has lived it out perfectly. Paul, this good and earnest and zealous man, a man who gave and spent his whole life for the sake of the gospel to the Gentiles. In his own life, he was not able to live up fully to his own teaching. He is a trustworthy guide for us on the way, but he is not the way. Jesus is the way, and he has trailblazed this way for us. He is the only one who has lived out uncommon unity perfectly. He is the one who in himself was in the very nature of God and gave up those rights as God in order to become a servant to us and sacrificed in his own body so that we could be made one with him. And that is the attitude of humility that we are called to. What does it mean to be like-minded? It is not to agree on every single matter. It's to have the mind of Christ who humbled himself, who gave up his rights, who became a servant and who died for you and for me so that we could be together. That is the way of unity. And we will not experience unity if we are clamoring to get to the top, if we are clamoring to fight for our own rights, demanding that everyone agree with what we think is right. There is only space for unity at the bottom as servants with Christ. 
Lord, we need your help with this. This is impossible for us to do in our own flesh, in our own mind, in our own weaknesses. We just can't. We, we need you by your spirit to make us humble like Jesus. So Lord, we ask for your help. We pray that as we navigate differences right now, if there are divisions, if there is unreconciliation among us right now, that you would make us humble and gentle and patient. Help us to bear with each other in love. Lord, we don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what's next. We don't know the things that are going to be happening in the life of our congregation, in the life of our city, in the life of our country. And so we ask that you would help us as we seek to navigate this world faithfully as followers of Jesus, that you would make us humble toward one another. That you would help us to know the difference of when an issue is a decide for issue, a debate over issue, a divide over issue, or a die for issue. That you would give us the wisdom to know that and to interact and talk with one another based on Shared agreement on those things. Help us, Lord. We need your help. Lord, and again, we, we thank you. We thank you for the example of Paul, who was both, both good and flawed, who was both faithful and unfaithful. And we thank you mostly for the example of Jesus, the only faithful one. Amen.